This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Lost Gun. And the author is Wix Simon. And Wix joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Wix. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. Uh, This is certainly a thriller, a lost gun. Let me read a couple things concerning your book. Uh, You say this, Firearms are great equalizers, which is why cops carry guns, but all cops worry about the consequences of losing their guns. In a lost gun, a beautiful but inexperienced homicide detective loses her gun in a shootout, and it turns up later as the weapon used to kill a prominent attorney. You will fall in love with the detective, and you will also love to hate the determined villain behind these crimes. Well, that sounds like a page-turner, and of course, Kirkus Reviews gives you this great review. It says, Boku Drama in a Dead-On Noir. So you can't get much better than that, can you, Wix? No, you can't. I was pretty pleased with that review. Uh, I spent I spent a lot of time writing this book. I wrote I wrote the first draft, believe it or not, in 1993, and it sat around for a while. And I finally got around to to uh, publishing it, and it kept. You know, I maybe I could felt I could walk away from it, but I really couldn't. I really wanted. I really needed to get this book out, and. Uh, well, it's, it's so I, different from your career. Your career is so scientific. Tell us a little bit about that, and then why you love to write these kinds of stories. Uh, I am a uh, practicing toxicologist. I have my own business and work out of my house. I'm a solo practitioner. I worked for the Federal Environmental Protection Agency for 12 years, and that's uh, and I have a PhD in biology, and that was that was essentially my scientific career. I've I've always enjoyed writing. My uh, my father taught me to write between the ages of about 11 and 14. Uh, he was a very good writer. He was an attorney. Um, he was the county attorney of Dade County, Florida, for many years. And uh, I got to like it. And, in fact, I got an email from a college buddy a few days ago. And uh, he says, I'm glad to see you're still writing. He says, I remember in college when uh, I would struggle in that creative writing class and you would turn out 70 pages of porn in a weekend. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's something I've always liked to do. And I've written, I've written more novels than just the two I have published, but those were, uh, in my much younger days and I'm not going to publish those novels. Uh, I'm at work on another one and I don't have a title yet, but it's, it's about a serial killer. Uh, I learned my, uh, police, uh, information and and essentially the cop stuff from a gentleman named Mickey Lloyd, who was the lead investigator on the missing and murdered children's case in Atlanta. And Mickey Lloyd and I coached a girls soccer team together. And so we got to be pretty friendly. And uh, I went to, he was the, uh, 
He was the serial killer expert in the Atlanta Police Department at the time. He was a lieutenant, uh, and he had been to the FBI profiling school. And I went to several lectures of his down in the uh, Georgia Public Safety Training Center in Forsyth, Georgia, rode down there with him, and uh, he was really helpful to me, and just in term, not just in terms of procedures, but in terms of the mindset of criminals. Now, a thriller, action murder thriller, it requires some certain techniques, and you really work at this, this, you know, pacing, we call it. It's really important, and so that's why your, your book is such a page-turner. I need to leave the reader wanting to know, wanting desperately to know what is going to happen next. And whether because they are engaged by the characters or the action is so intense and uh, it ends a chapter, say, without resolution, so they have to read it further to uh, get that resolution or find out what's happening to those characters that they love or else they love to hate. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the characters, some of the plot, so everyone can really, really even almost taste this. Uh, now, you've got this guy that murders his entire family, and of course, this homicide detective, Jesse Sands, uh, she's in pursuit. Uh, she does, and the, the, the murderer in this case is not a major character. He is some, someone to get the action going, and uh, he takes off, and she... she would have stopped him there, but she was uh, she was scared. She was frightened. She has not used her gun in the line of duty yet, so she tails him. Uh, she does not yet have a partner. Um, she was she didn't want to call for backup for fear that she would look incompetent. Uh, she follows him to a bridge. He takes the shotgun that he used for the murders and drops it over the bridge rail. She steps out of her vehicle and pulls a gun, her gun on him and tells him to get on the ground. He doesn't. He rushes at her. Uh, finally, he's, his hands are almost on her when she has to shoot him right in the face, and she kills him, of course. And she shoots him, I guess, or fires a number of times at him. That must be a gripping, gripping kind of an experience. I, you know, I mean, that could literally happen in real life. It could. It could. And, one, of, in fact, the transition... Uh, back in 1993, when I was talking to Mickey Lloyd, the transition that police have made from Smith, Smith and Wesson hardware to Glock, and mm -hmm. uh, is the result of event of things like this. Uh, Smith and Wesson 38, especially one of those little air weights, will not stop someone, mm. and you know a bigger gun will. And the Glocks were, you know, before that, a bigger gun was a was, a, was like a Smith 45, and it was it was just not good to carry around because it was too big. The Glocks are lighter because they're, you know, they have a lot of non-metal parts. And so that was how that transition occurred. And that was just occurring at the time. That's sort of what made me think of this. Mm. And then her gun, um, she shoots him at such close range that, uh, she's covered by, uh, blowback from the, the, the passage of the bullet through his head. And as she turns, she, you know, she goes to wipe her eyes uh, she drops her weapon in the river. So, a lost gun. A lost gun, exactly. And where will it turn up? Well, that's uh, you know that's that's sort of the heart <laughs> of the story. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, they they I I won't give too much away by telling you that the bad guy is a really bad guy, and 
is uh, we still we set up his character at the start of the book. He's always trying to get over on women. He stops the, the first scene with him in the in the first chapter. Uh, it, it cuts between Jesse Sands and this gentleman named well, he's not a gentleman, but this man named Ron Niles, and he stops a woman for speeding, and shakes her down for sex. Hmm. Uh, that's kind of his mo. And uh, uh, what he says to what he says to women in this situation is that well. So what are you going to do for me? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he wants to. Uh, Jess, Jesse's pretty attractive, of course. Why would I? Why would I write a novel otherwise? And uh, he he uh, wants to do that. That uh, he wants to say that to her, and have it mean something. Have have it be uh, coercive. And he uh, he figures out where the gun is, and he manages to uh, retrieve it. Well, you have some interesting themes running through the story. Uh, one, overcoming our own personal flaws in order to overcome evil. That, that is a battle that literally goes on, I guess, within people every day. That, that's exactly right. I mean, Jessie is very flawed. She, uh, she never got over losing her father. And this, this changes a lot of her actions, and it, it it drives her towards a lot of things. It's one. It's the reason she became a cop. It's the reason she's a. She is. The reason she's as good a cop as she is. She's not a perfect cop. She's got. She's a. She's a good thinker, but sometimes things get in the way, and she can't see certain things. Uh, she knows that she's in. She's in transition. She feels this throughout the book, and uh, I think it's really important that characters move in arcs throughout these stories. I mean, we we see this. Um, we see this in movies. We see this in in, in well done books. And it's that it's the, the once you start to love a character or get be engaged by a character as a reader, it's that arc that keeps you going. As they progress, as they learn new things and try new things, and try new things and try and realize new things about themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one scene in the book. Uh, Jessie has always had the feeling throughout this book that her life is changing. Well, it does. It changes a lot throughout the book. And let me not give too much away, but at one point she has to go and interview a witness to uh, um, a murder. And this witness is an old voodoo woman. And as she goes into her house, the woman says, I have to do, I will talk to you, but I have to do a reading on you first. So she does a a three-card tarot reading. And she turns up uh, love the moon and the devil, and uh, she says, "Well, you know, there's there's love, there's evil, and the future is unfixed. We don't know what's going to happen." And Jesse uh, goes through this, and and here's this uh, here's this uh, old woman tell her to read her tarot, and says, "Well, maybe my, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe all those feelings I had that my life is changing are true." And and it is happening. I wonder where it will go. We take people like Jesse for granted in the world because they're literally battling evil. And of course, there's evil all around us. And as you point out, and I guess that's what your book is really focused on, it takes work to root out evil. It does. It's pretty entrenched. And people get, uh, you know, people who want to do bad things. And I'm talking about, uh, People selling drugs to children, people engaged in human trafficking. Uh, these are people not not who who uh, 
commit a crime of passion in the heat of the moment, but rather who set out to uh, feather their own nests in a way that is completely amoral, who will do anything to maintain their their uh, power and their access to money and access to the things they want. And uh, right or wrong, they do this. And the 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 bad guy the bad guy in my book is exactly one of those people. He's completely amoral. Is there any other key character? Uh, is there any uh, key character that romance with Jesse and the you know the good guy, or is any or maybe well, the they, bad they, guy? <laughs> the detective. And we haven't mentioned him yet. So uh, I I uh, you know which is sort of a testament to how much I like Jesse. Uh, but the. The, I would say if there's any protagonist in the book, and Kirkus, Kirkus, the way they wrote their review is they did not see a protagonist, but Detective Bud Pryor is the male lead in the book, and he was in, the, he was in my first book called A Toxic Assault, and uh, he's the uh, protagonist in the book that I'm going to uh, take up again once I finish the textbook I'm writing. Uh, Bud is a... Uh, he's an interesting guy. He's very committed to being a policeman uh, because he was uh, very influenced by one of his uh, his his great uncle, who he, he grew up in Vermont and uh, then moved to the South because he didn't like cold. But uh, his uh, great uncle was an inspector for the Burlington, Vermont Police Department, and uh, would tell him would tell Bud stories when he was a little boy. And Bud decided at that point he was going to be a policeman. And uh, his career has an arc too, and I know I know that arc, and no one else does, and I'm going to keep it that way. But he transitions from through a number of police departments, sort of essentially he's a he's a savvy guy, and getting getting uh, raises and promotions as he goes. And I pick certain times in his life to uh, write about in certain cases. He has different cases, of course, in different places at different times, and this is. Uh, in this book, he was just moved to internal affairs, and it's a mess over there. And he is he's sort of not partnered with a fellow that he's told to work with. And this this man he's told to work with is uh, won't share information with him. And uh, because not not so much because of anything Bud does, because this man doesn't trust anyone. And this comes to this this ends up being very very a very very difficult situation to the point where bud goes out and runs his starts his own secret investigation after seeking legal counsel uh on whether or not he can actually do this and 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 what the downside is for him and uh he just he goes ahead and he says i can't if he won't trust me i clearly can't trust him it's really difficult to work together even though we're supposed to i'm going to do what i need to do to solve this case and he has already tumbled to the uh tumbled to the bad guy at that point and knows and has an inkling of just how bad he is and this is one thing that in the book that i create some tension as it goes along because the reader knows more about the bad guy in my book than the cops do so they're, the cops are investigating, and they're learning, and they're coming up to where the reader is. Well, as you so well describe, uh, these two detectives, uh, Jesse and Bud, they must sacrifice everything in order to take down a crime ring fueled by a cold-hearted, determined villain. Uh, Wicks, uh, give us a closing thought. We have about a minute. Okay. Um I think the other thing is to realize uh, that where people find humor, uh, 
this is there's some there's a lot of grim aspects to my book, but there's a lot there's some there's some humor in there too. Uh, the cops are investigating some people who hold up clubs and steal the safes, and the the joke going around then was that the uh, motto that the police department was going to be changed to from to protect and serve to your safe in our hands. <laughs> and uh, then there's another time where uh, a uh, fairly central character in the book is described as having God on speed dial. <laughs> well, it's called A Lost Gun. That's the title of his book, Wix Simon. Wix, tell us how to get your book. Uh, Steve, you can get my book on uh, Amazon. You can get it on Barnes & Noble. Probably the best way is to go to my website, which is... Uh, www.wixsimon.com W-I-X-S-I-M-O-N That's uh, Wix uh, like lamp Wix uh, candle Wix with an X and then Simon like simple Simon rhymes with Pyman <laughs> uh, pretty easy to remember and if you go there uh, if you're not too sure about whether you want to buy it there's a, there's a barcode on the website where you can get the uh, first uh, chapter for free Fantastic. Or you can get the look inside at Amazon if you go there. Thank you, Wix, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much, Steve. Have a great day. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Dix of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back. To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, If Two Are Dead, and the author is Jonathan Cariel. And Jonathan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jonathan. Good afternoon, sir. 
Well, this is a great mystery novel. It's written in the first person. Uh, you say this about it. Unsatisfied when his employer's baffling death is ruled a misfortune, Thomas Dordrecht tenaciously pursues one fortuitous clue, proves he was murdered, and apprehends the murderer. So this is, an, this is a, the third in a series on uh, the adventures of Thomas Dordrecht, it looks like, and you uh, have more to come. But first of all, Jonathan, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this kind of a story. Uh, well, I'm a, um, I studied history at New York University, American history particularly, always been interested in it, though I spent most of my life working as a computer uh, support officer. Um, and I have become fascinated with the uh, late 18th century, particularly uh, in the last several years. And as I proceed with the story, I get more fascinated with it. Um, the idea of the series is that we take one particular individual, we focus on one particular individual, who is born in 1740, in New York, uh, what is now the greater New York City, uh, but then was a very small farming village in uh, Kings County, or Brooklyn. And uh, he's of mixed uh, Dutch and English ancestry. Um, and he is going to become a shipper, a, um, a businessman, which uh, puts him in the forefront of all the controversies <clears throat> that develop in New York City and America uh, in the later 18th century. So that's how we uh, that's how we got started here. So a partner in the shipping firm that employs uh, young Thomas Dordrecht uh, is found dead in an alley, and that starts the whole thing, uh, an alleyway in today's Manhattan. That's correct, yeah. Right, right down there in Lower Manhattan, um, the, the physical spot is still right there, but it's of course not uh, not an alleyway anymore. It's a skyscraper. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, the idea is that the death is completely inexplicable. Uh, no one can figure out why on earth this man should be dead, uh, but he's not breathing, and. Uh, the uh, shock is enormous to the people in his firm, but uh, they are so overwhelmed that uh, they mostly cannot do anything about it. And uh, Thomas, because of his uh, insatiable curiosity and, um, and drive, decides he has to at least try and follow up with whatever clues there are and he he goes and finds it even more inexplicable as he proceeds. Um, but then he is interrupted by a business trip that has been long planned and takes him to the Caribbean. And this was not a matter of a three-hour flight in those days. It was a matter of a long trip by a sailing vessel. And so it's six months before he's able to resume the the uh, pursuit of the uh, culprits and uh, the, 
of the fact that it was a murder and uh, who did it and how and why uh, all, all preoccupy him through the rest of the book. What makes Thomas so interesting, so unique? Um, I think it's his, uh, his openness, his, uh, his willingness to uh, consider all points of view, his uh, empathy with people, his um, friendliness, and uh, open-mindedness, and, and not, not to mention his intelligence, you know. He's an autodidact. He's not a, not a, a wealthy person or a uh, highly trained individual, but he is working hard like many of the period who uh, basically decided they had to educate themselves, and that's what he's doing. So we have uh, what kind of issues at, that are dominating this story? Issues of the time? Very much, very much, because the year of this, this story is very specifically 1762, which is still 14 years before the revolution, and at a time when nobody is talking about revolution. There is no thought of independence from Britain at this point in time. Uh, however, there's an awful lot of annoyance with uh, imperial uh, edicts and uh, taxes and, and uh, behavior, uh, particularly military behavior. And um, so this, these controversies do, do uh, come up. They're things that people have to face in ordinary life, and particularly when they're trying to do uh, big, serious international business, which our heroes just getting his feet wet trying to do. And I guess that's why shipping is the focus. That's, that's one of the major reasons. The other is I happen to be fascinated with, with sailing and uh, with uh, ocean travel and so forth. But uh, yes, shipping was the crux of many of the controversies between uh, the imperial overlords and America at that time. And most often murder mysteries involved, uh, you know, attorneys or police officers, detectives, but yours is a businessman. That's right, right. I wanted to, first of all, there, there weren't any police in those days uh, in New York City, um, but uh, it could have been an attorney or something like that. But I wanted to stay away from that. I wanted to have have uh, people be able to um, get into real life, if you if you will, uh, to empathize with a real person's uh, everyday experiences and and how it would be disrupted by uh, a necessity of trying to pursue the clues to uh, an an outrageous murder. Um, he didn't have any enemies, I guess. Uh, no, not not as yet. At any right, rate, right. Uh, no personal enemies. Uh, he might might uh, someday acquire them. Who knows if he gets <laughs> into uh, into real trouble? 
Now, he finds this clue, a very unusual clue on the victim. Yes, yes. It's a, it's a couple of playing cards that are just completely inexplicable. Uh, first of all, it's, it's uh, curious that the victim would even have playing cards because he's a very fastidious Quaker. But it happens that this particular fastidious Quaker likes playing cards. But they are uh, not usual playing cards. They are uh, the varlets. Uh, there are cards that are not part of the f- uh, familiar 52-card deck that we know. And uh, so they have been pulled out of a deck in order to play a game and stuffed into a book. And uh, these these particular cards, being unusual, are what uh, provides an opportunity to pursue the rest of the deck and uh, pursue the uh, story in the culprit. And your stories are narrated in the first person. Why did you go that route? I wanted, wanted our hero to be able to speak directly to the reader, to um, make the reader totally drawn in to his life and his way of thinking and his immediate reactions to things uh, that I take out of the omniscient author, uh, take the omniscience out of it so that you're truly drawn into his mental uh, purview and uh, I hope this works. It seems to be working for some of the readers, certainly. Well, Thomas uh, has a unique uh, opportunity to be a hero for an eight-year-old boy, and that that gets tied to even this murder. How? Tell us about that. Um, the uh, there, there's a, a ferry across the Hudson River uh, in the same physical place that. Ferries operate today between Jersey City and downtown Manhattan, uh, except there are a few blocks uh, closer out uh, today than they were then because of all the landfill on both sides of the river. But at any rate, this is the ferry in question is actually a very small sailing sloop, and uh, it's uh, only capable of holding, oh, a dozen passengers or so, and one of the passengers is a child who uh, is a little too uh, careless of what's happening and is busy jumping around and falls overboard. Now, the skipper of the ferry returns the sailboat to the child very quickly, and our hero simply leans overboard with his legs being held by somebody else and hauls the kid back in. He is able to reach over and grab the child out of the river. So uh, this is this is not any kind of great heroism. It's just a, a, an effort that uh, takes, takes care. But uh, it triggers a, uh, a memory and a vision of what happened to Mr. Sproul, the victim. And uh, 
I don't want to give away sure. exactly how this all happens, but right. uh, it has to do something with the fact that the incident with the child happens in the middle of the summer, and Mr. Sproul expired in the middle of the winter. Well, now, he has uh, an interesting group of friends. Uh, what are some of the key characters around Thomas? Ah, he has been very lucky in one particular respect, in that he has wonderful mentors. And uh, the he's come up with a group of friends that are very unusual, but it does happen in New York City sometimes. Uh, he's 22. Uh, his his partner boss, I mean, I mean the partner of his firm, uh, not the one who was killed, but the uh, the chief partner is in his 60s. He and his wife, but they're from Philadelphia, and they are new to New York City and don't have any family here. Then there's a childless couple who are recently married in their 40s also uh, without family in the city, and our hero at 22, and his eccentric cousin who is 29. Um, these, these folks uh, find enough in common, uh, and they have business interests in common, of course, that uh, they, they group themselves together and become very, very close. And uh, this is a, a wonderful thing, particularly for young Thomas, because it affords him a perspective on the larger world that he otherwise might not get. Well, this is the third installment in the ongoing story. Uh, if Two Are Dead is the title, and a fourth one is in the making? That's right. I'm getting very excited about the fourth one, which will be set uh, in... New York City during the Stamp Act crisis of 1765. It will be called uh, Exquisite Folly. Again, uh, a quote from Benjamin Franklin. Um, and uh, the Stamp Act crisis is, uh, the more I read about it, the more outrageous it seems. The American Revolution very nearly started in November of 1765 in New York City. Um, it was, uh, the, the guns were primed and pointed at crowds, and uh, they could very easily have gone off. And uh, it's a very fortunate thing that they didn't uh, at that point in time. But uh, rioting in New York City went on for days and weeks. It was uh, a very, very volatile uh, situation at that point. So our hero will be in the thick of it, and uh, so will an outrageous murder. Well, we appreciate your love of history. This is a great way to set this uh, fiction, this murder mystery, at a very important time in our nation's history. Uh, if Two Are Dead is the title of this part of the series, and Jonathan Carriel, he is the author. Jonathan, tell us how to get your book. Ah, it's uh, available on Amazon.com, and it's all all three of the books. Uh, uh, my my first two, also Die Fasting and Great Mischief, are all three available for Kindle, 
Uh, that's the most inexpensive way to get them, and uh, through a universe, of course, and uh, that's at barnesandnoble.com. So they are available, but you have to go and check it out on the Internet. Uh, they can also look up, everybody is also uh, urged to look up my website, jonathancarriel.com, uh, where I have lots of background information about the period and the historical characters and so forth, uh, including photographs of, of the same areas today and uh, uh, so forth. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for being with us on Author Talk. Ah, thank you, sir. Great talking. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Hellish Place of Angels, Kantian, One Man's Journey. And the author is Daryl J. Eigen. And Daryl joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Daryl. Hi. Great to have you with us. We salute you for your service. Uh, you were in Vietnam and wounded and suffered today because of that service there. We will talk in detail more about that. But let me read what you've written that kind of sets the stage for our discussion. You say this, A hellish place of angels is a powerful story that is developed through the use of a narrative braid of letters to the family, memories, and historical references. This is one man's journey through the escalating hell of Vietnam in 1966 and 19. 19- 
1967, which culminated in the, in the brutal battles of Kantian. Well, that's a war that, for unfortunate reasons, I could never figure it out why we treated our soldiers the way we did coming back from the war, but I guess it was too much politics and not enough reality. But again, thank you for your service, Daryl. Thanks for acknowledging that. Appreciate it. Now, tell us about how this all came about uh, in more detail and why you decided to publish your book. Well, it started when we were taking care of my mother and moving her into an apartment where she could better handle her life. And when we were going through her her stuff, uh, she came running out of the bedroom crying. She discovered uh, what she had put away somewhere was uh, this case, and she handed it to me, and I opened it up. She couldn't tell me what it was, but I opened it up, and it was filled with letters that I had written home to my family members and a few other people that she had saved all those years. That was in... 1998. I took the letters home, and then not too long after, she passed away, and I felt obligated to do something with the letters to honor my mother having saved them and also honor my time in service. And lastly, it was an effort to really heal myself and perhaps others who had experienced the same things that I did. So you were a young man, feeling a lot of patriotism, joining the Army. How old were you? Well, I joined the Marine Corps. I mean, the Marine Corps. I'm sorry. Yeah, for us, that's a big difference. That is true. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I joined the, uh, the Marine Corps to really join the adventure. It was part patriotism, but... Also, I wanted to see the world, and I saw it as an opportunity, and I wanted to thought it'd be a good opportunity to see the world and become a man. Did you, at that age, do you really think about war? Do you really, I mean, there's no way to understand it until you're in it, I'm sure, but did that, did the, uh, all the effects of war, was it ever on your mind when you're that young? No, it's, uh, I had a very romanticized uh, view of war. It was, uh, you know, based on books, Farewell to Arms and and so forth. And um, I was excited about going and actually had several opportunities to sidestep it. And um, I forged ahead. And uh, it all became very quickly apparent, the brutality of war and um and it was quite it turned out to be quite an experience yeah romance gives away quickly to the reality yeah reality is overwhelming with war why was being in the war a spiritual journey for you it turns out that when the romanticism is gone and the expertise is gone and the feeling of competence is gone and the repeated exposures to death, that you get to the bottom of your spirit. And the only thing you have left, really, is is your relationship to God and perhaps to your buddy in your foxhole. 
And it must be so, I can't even come up with all the words, I know, but to see those around you get killed and wounded and or wounded, it must be a very sobering kind of experience. Yeah, it, it totally, losing your buddies in war and seeing others felled by enemy shells, it's just a, it's a gruesome, heart-wrenching experience, and uh, it stays with you forever. And if, in the case of Vietnam, we weren't allowed to really talk about it. He brought it up, it was a, a conversation and showstopper. So we weren't, we had to hide and stuff our feelings about Vietnam. And you just can't, you can only do that for so long. And it eventually um, comes out to haunt you. You have three purple hearts. That's right. That means wounded three times in three different uh, battles? Three, in three different engagements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was over, in, I was, um, in over a dozen operations against enemy forces, which is something that um, that kind of intense involvement with fighting the Viet Cong and fighting the North Vietnamese Army, um, it was sort of a new kind of experience for the, the Marine or soldier because the helicopter, as a, when it was introduced into the war, allowed us to get into engagement in minutes. Um, whereas in World War II, it took, the transportation took up a lot of time getting the soldier, the Marine, to the front lines. What, uh, excuse me, how graphic do you get in your book with these battles? Well, I, I, tr- I try to uh, give the experience that a person is there. And I've, according to people who have read it, I, I've been quite successful in doing that. But I don't beat the reader over with uh, a lot of gruesome detail. I think it's not, it's unnecessary. If given the right, um, the right way of placing a person through the words into the events of, of what I'm trying to convey, that you don't have to really be so graphic and gruesome for people to imagine how bad it was. Why, why haven't we heard about Kantian before? Well, you know, it's very interesting that that uh, that that isn't uh, well known because it was actually according to Westmoreland it received more incoming artillery rockets mortars and rifle fire and and so on every type of ordnance that the North Vietnamese army had it as a US held uh, piece of territory it received more incoming um ordnance than any other time in history. And so it was, it's curious. Now, when I went back and did research and looked up my memories, my memories were of just being in a foxhole, being shelled, and then fighting the uh, invading forces after they softened us up with artillery. But going back into the literature, there's a lot of media attention that was placed to Kantian. In fact, uh, Mike Wallace did uh, a CBS um, 
show called The Ordeal of Tantien, where he spends 30 minutes dedicated of airtime uh, showing film from Tantien and the battle that was taken by various sources. And it made the cover of Life magazine, it made the cover of Time magazine, but people don't remember it. And, and I think that's because that shortly after, that was in September of 1967, in the early part of 1968, came the Tet Offensive with Quezon being part of that. And that overshadowed uh, the public's memory of the events of the time. But Kantian was one of the most brutal battles of, of Vietnam. Many come back from war and they suffer from post-traumatic syndrome. Why have you been able to accomplish so much with that kind of uh, impact on you? Well, you know, in, in a funny kind of way, uh, accomplishment is actually a symptom of PTSD because you really want, you want to run away as far as you can from that terrible experience and stuff it and and get involved in other things in a very deep kind of way. Um, another aspect is that I went back to school after I got back and I was so happy to be in a classroom as opposed to a foxhole while it was raining, shells and, and rain, that uh, I just... They, I had my uh, attention fixed on what was required to uh, get through school, and I, be, I was very lucky to receive a number of scholarships and grants and interest from Bell Laboratories, which I ended up joining after I finished my credentials. And, and also worked on projects with NASA? Yeah, I did. I invented this uh, cluster analysis algorithm that um, ran on the first Earth resource satellite data that was able to detect um, a field of corn that was healthy from a field of corn that had corn blight and other kinds of distinctions like that. Now today you suffer from Parkinson's disease. Is this directly related to Agent Orange? Uh, yeah, the the Veterans Administration acknowledges presumptively that if you have Parkinson's and you were in Vietnam during certain years, then it's service connected. And so I they they just did that about a year a year and a half ago. So that that was that was nice of them, but it's no fun having uh, Parkinson's. I can assure you. Well, let's kind of uh, wrap up here, uh, Daryl, with some of your thoughts about uh, Vietnam. Uh, was it a moral war? Um. Well, you can. Uh, there's a lot of argument that goes into that, and. Um, I personally don't think it was a moral war. And one of the basic aspects of morality that wasn't a war is that we didn't 
take territory like in other wars and occupy it. What we did was um, measured success, in quotes, uh, in terms of body count. And I think that led to some dishonest or untruthful uh, estimates of how many of our enemy were, were killed. It also led to some terrible things like a free fire zone. The whole area I was in, there was no... Um, the citizenry was told to vacate the area and vacate their homes. And uh, then we assumed anyone in the area was either Viet Cong or North Vietnamese Army. Um, yeah. I, I think one thing it's, uh, I don't really discuss that much about morality in the book, but because of the references and my recollections and these letters, which are authentic, uh, writings of the, of that period, that there is an opportunity to, uh, include the, this book in libraries and to, for historians and academicians of the time. To, to be to understand, help them and help us understand whether the war was a moral one or not. Major theme of your book, life and of course death, and which is always intensified by war. Give us a closing thought, Daryl. Well, I think I'd like to say that war is not a good rite of passage, a good way to for a, a boy to become a man. Napoleon said that he can manipulate young men with um, with colored ribbons and have them do anything that he asked, and that's been true in every war. And I think uh, when I looked at my son when he turned 18, I looked at him, and he was a very mature 18-year-old, but when I looked at him in terms of war, he was very, very young and I was glad he didn't have to to go to prove anything. So I, I I wish all that only men fight wars that have to be fought. We've been listening to Daryl J. Eichen. He is the author of his book, A Hellish Place of Angels, Kantian, One Man's Journey. Daryl, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's it's available anywhere as an ebook or as a paperback. Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, Powell Bookstores, Books a Million. I, on the website, if you, in fact, if you just Google a hellish place of angels, uh, a lot of these opportunities will come up, and you can go ahead and purchase the book. Thank you very much, Daryl. Again, thank you for your service, and thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.